Okay, so we uh, had a little failure to launch last week, but this week we're ready to go. In in what sense? Well, in in the sense that we are waiting for our secret musical guest, someone we've been trying to get on the big show for so long, and, and he's going to be calling in via Skype. Am I correct on this? Oh yes, it's 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 coming. Gu- guaranteed, it's coming. Try, uh, tr- trust me on this one. So at any point, the Skype line rings, we answer it, and it's our secret musical guest. Yes, absolutely, it will be. I guarantee you. All right, here we go. Big inaugural season five episode launch. Okay, where were we? Um, when we last talked? Oh, sex bots. No, 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 no. That that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. We'll tell you about NASA's new flight suit that takes a page from Hollywood. The author of Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo will join us to explain why astronauts shouldn't lie about the size of their rockets. The golden record. You know that Chuck Berry is belting out tunes 40,000 light years away on Voyagers 1 and 2? But did you know about the mysterious laugh that made it on that record? Plus, exploring virtual space, Star Trek Bridge Crew comes to VR. And 1,969 pieces of space history. Matt Padani reports on that Lego Saturn V rocket you know you just gotta have. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I didn't know you were a, a spacesuit nerd. I was a child of the Gemini and the Apollo programs. I followed those projects like it was life and death. Three, two, all engines running. And I could tell you anything about either one of those programs, all the way up until, uh, I guess, the space shuttle program. I have to tell you, in a related vein, I collected anything and everything I could find on Canadian astronaut Mark Garneau. Okay. And had a scrapbook as a kid. How weird it was for me, maybe 30 years later, maybe a little bit more, interviewing him for his political life. (laughs) Yeah. And it's difficult not to reach out with your hand and say, I'm a huge fan. I love everything you're doing. Now, let me tell you why everything politically you're doing is wrong. (laughs) Yes. He's the uh, (laughs) transportation minister. Correct. Then this is right up your alley here. Boeing contracted a company to build a a new spacesuit. And uh, the fascinating thing about this is we needed somebody, of course, besides you who knew something or two about spacesuits. This thing looks like it was designed by Stanley Kubrick. Forget, you know, everything of your Apollo and Gemini programs and stuff like that. Joining us now is the author of Spacesuit, Fashioning Apollo. Nicholas de Monchot joins us now. Good to have you with us. Delighted to be here. Like I say, did this thing step out of 2001, A Space Odyssey? It's nice, sleek and blue. It's tight fitting. It doesn't feel like those big rompers that we used to see. Oh, that's such an interesting question, because the new uh, Constellation suit, I think is the one you're referring to, that Boeing unveiled, is actually made by the very same company that made the Gemini spacesuit. And it is uh, a design which, at least underneath the sleek 
exterior is pretty much unchanged from the 1960s, not because uh, it's not very sophisticated, but because in the 1960s, an enormous amount of work was done very quickly to figure out how to make uh, two different kinds of spacesuits. The first served as a kind of emergency backup to astronauts in the Mercury and Gemini program, of which the the current uh, Constellation suit is a similar suit. It's designed to protect the astronauts if the atmosphere in the capsule fails. And then the second kind of suit, of course, is the sort of suit they needed for Apollo, which is the sort, uh, a suit which you can go outside of your spaceship in and uh, do work and uh, even, uh, in the case of Apollo, walk around on the surface of the moon. And all those suits had to be completely self-contained with cooling, heating, uh, radiation protection, all that sort of stuff. So Absolutely. They had to be big and bulky because of the mechanics involved just in making, making the things work. Although, you know, they were they were surprisingly um, they the the Apollo suit is sort of interesting because it does look kind of bulky, but it actually was much less heavy and much less um, uh, bulky than the current suits that are worn in EVAs on the International Space Station. And apparently an awful lot more support, too, because it was made by the people behind Playtex bras. <laughs> that, that is an amazing part of the story. Yes, the the Apollo spacesuit and indeed the um, current suits used on the ISS were made by a, uh, a, a company which started out as the uh, a division, a very small division of the same company that made Playtex bras and girdles. Uh, and not only that, but the chief scientist on the Apollo spacesuit program for um, ILC, as it was called, the International Latex Company, very grandly named, was a guy named Len Shepard, who started his career as the TV repairman of uh, Playtex's founder, Abram Spinell. <laughs> now, do, do I understand this correctly? Because what it looks like, in particular when you talk about the Apollo suits, yeah. was that they were essentially two-part. When, when you saw them go out um, extra vehicularly, yeah. uh, that was, of course, the, the much bulkier suit, but they were still wearing the pressure suit underneath that. Well, actually, no. It it turns out they, they, they had to get basically stripped same, down to their skivvies. No, it was the same suit. Um, uh, they were wearing in both cases. This was one of the enormous restrictions on the uh, Apollo program. In the um, uh, when astronauts go up today to the ISS, and when we were still sending astronauts up in the shuttle, they they had two different kinds of suits. The first was a uh, like the current Boeing Constellation suit you were referring to was called a get me down quick suit. It's a suit that in case of disaster, uh, loss of pressure in the in the vehicle, and um, for the shuttle program. There were those orange pumpkin suits that they used to wear. And then they wore a second suit in the a shuttle program and on the ISS for actual work outside in space, a much bulkier white suit. Because there were so many weight restrictions on the Apollo program, they ended up having to use the same suit for both purposes. So the only thing they added when they went onto the surface of the moon was an external helmet that made the head even bigger and those um, amazing lunar booties that went over the shoes of the uh, of the spacesuit, but otherwise it was exactly the same garment. Oh, I see, because I'm looking at the A7L without yep. the outer layer and visor assembly, which is blue, yep. and I had never seen that before. Well, that's the pressure layer. So a spacesuit, the the space, well, the, the fundamental problem of all soft suits, like the Playtex suit 
like the constellation suit is it's a, at, at the base of it, it's a latex bladder. And that's the blue thing that you're looking at with a kind of nylon covering. And when you inflate that to, um, to hold pressure, which of course you have to do in the vacuum of outer space, it basically wants to be like a basketball. It wants to be round and it wants to be very hard and inflexible when it's, um, uh, when it's inflated. And of course, uh, you may have noticed, but the human body is not round. Uh, and the human body needs to move a lot. So the problem in spacesuit design, and this was the problem that only Playtech solved really in the case of the Apollo suit, is that you need this thing to be to hold pressure, but then also to be flexible for the person moving inside of it. And in fact, the Gemini suits that preceded Apollo, when they did do EVAs in the suit, they were so difficult and hard to move uh, inside that when um, poor Gene Cernan came down after the longest Gemini spacewalk, they emptied almost a bucket of sweat from each leg of his spacesuit that he sweated out in the course of uh, doing his EVA. And of course, for the Apollo program, they they, uh, figured out the the cooling garment, which helped stop you sweat. And then it was actually much easier and much more flexible to move in because um, uh, Len Shepard, the guy I was telling about, the the Playtex TV repairman. He admittedly was an MIT dropout, so he was no slouch. Um, uh, and he figured out how to use the three materials that Playtex had in its bras and girdles, which were the latex of the girdles and the nylon strapping and nylon kind of lacy material from the bras. And he joined those all together into an assembly that was called a convolute that let the the uh, Apollo spacesuit bend at all of its joints without changing in volume or needing to increase and decrease in pressure. And that's what actually solved the problem um, of, of the Apollo suit. And then on top of that um, uh, pressure layer, they added um, uh, what ended up being a total of 21 other layers of materials to protect against or micrometeoroids or all the other hazards astronauts faced um, in outer space. This is uh, what almost killed Alexei Leonov, the, the first man to walk in space. When he left the airlock of uh, his, his Voxod 2 ca- uh, capsule, uh, he was out there floating above the Earth, and then when he tried to get back in, he couldn't make it through the hatch because his pressure suit had expanded like a balloon in the vacuum of space. And he had to make some pretty quick decisions to deflate himself so he could get back inside. That is absolutely remarkable. Another thing that uh, is weird about spacesuits. Now, tell me if this is true. The most difficult thing to manufacture in a spacesuit is the glove. That is absolutely true, because if you think of the part of your body that needs to move the most and is least like a basketball, it's your hand. And so um, uh, getting that um, uh, uh, pressure vessel around the the hand is enormously difficult. And even to this day, um, uh, one of the first... uh, uh, people I interviewed when I was researching my book was a, a fellow colleague at the time at the University of Virginia, Catherine Thornton, who was the astronaut who fixed the Hubble telescope um, uh, in a long EVA. And she said that she had, even in a, a shuttle era suit, she lost every single one of her fingernails from the um, from the strain of um, uh, of moving that glove around um, uh, with her fingers in order to uh, work all the wrenches and bolts she needed to do to fix the Hubble. See, these are things that we never hear about from the space program. That I didn't know that. <laughs> they don't share that sort of stuff. They don't, they don't share stuff like losing your nails and how you go to the bathroom when you're out there. Well, when you mentioned that they emptied two buckets of sweat from his legs, yes. I wondered how much of that was actually sweat. Well... <laughs> 
<laughs> to be sure, uh, I think one of the um, most amazing anecdotes that I uncovered that's in the uh, that is in the book was the. Um, uh, it had to do with this fundamental conflict between NASA and the way every other part of the space program was made, and then the fact that you had a bunch of um, garment workers, female, amazingly skilled female garment workers taken from the Playtex assembly line, sewing together the uh, Apollo suit. And uh, in the end, they had to, so they successfully appealed with NASA not to give every different kind of suit part a, um, a different serial number, but instead to use clothing designations, so small, medium and large for all the different astronauts, <laughs> um, uh, for all the different parts of the suit. And so in the end, every part of the suit, the elbows and gloves and everything like that, was sized for each astronaut to a small, medium or large, except for the urinary collection device, which after what was only described to me as an incident with the first astronaut they fitted was sized as a large, extra large and extra, extra large. <laughs> that is a completely, completely true story. <laughs> there was a, a contest back in 2007 for some civilian to come up with a better solution for, for gloves. And I'm led to believe that somebody won $200,000 and actually came up with something that NASA eventually adopted. Absolutely. That's, that, that absolutely happened. Uh, and in fact, that competition was, interestingly enough, you know, completely in the spirit of how the Apollo suit contract was won, because the, uh, uh, when they put out a repress, request for proposals for the Apollo suit in 1962, no one expected uh, uh, the, the Playtex bra and girdle company to supply the eventual design. But because it was an open call, just like the glove competition, all you know, uh, uh, dozens of different companies submitted proposals, and and even fewer of those submitted prototypes. And it was the uh, the former TV repairman who'd uh, in fact devised the best design. We hear about all the spin-off technologies and materials and everything that has come from the space program. I'm wondering, as a result of Apollo, do we have better bras? <laughs> That's a very good question. I have to say that the the um, ILC, what is now known as ILC Dover, um, spun out of the of the um, international latex company out of Playtex. Um, uh, in the middle of the Apollo program. So I'm not sure that there was so much of a technology transfer back. However, um, uh, there was, uh, of course, uh, a very important set of uh, uh, modifications to suit designs and ast astronaut garments that had to be made in the shuttle program for female astronauts. And so I believe we not only had better bras, but even uh, better bras in space. I think the takeaway of this entire conversation has been that when you are being fitted for your flight suit, yeah. do not lie about the size of your rocket. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you so much for your time. That's great. It's a pleasure. Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto because when you think class, you think Trump.
meantime, there's been an update on the golden record. Yeah, this has been one of my fascin- fascinations. Back in 1977, NASA launched two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Or V'ger as we know them now. If you want to go back to the first Star Trek movie, yes. <laughs> Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? One of them is now 16 billion miles away. The other one is 20 billion miles away. And bolted to the side of both of them are something called the Golden Record. Now, this is a phonograph record, just like an old school you know, vinyl record, except that it's made of gold because gold has a very high tolerance for things like being you know, thrown out into space for hundreds of millions of years. And uh, on this record are uh, some directions as to, you know, where Earth is, what we look like, uh, and a whole bunch of other things kind of like that. There's a lot of music on and it. And there is a lot of music. What they, what Carl Sagan was the, uh, the chief creator of this. Yes. And the Golden Record has all these different uh, languages of Earth and examples of music from Earth. Uh, the only uh, rock and roll song is Chuck Berry and Johnny B. Good. Yes! Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! No Beatles, no nothing like that. It's Chuck Berry, Johnny B. Good. So after our son has gone Nova and we're all uh, a crisp uh, and, and, and gone forever, uh, Johnny B. Good will be out there somewhere in the cosmos until Voyager 1 or Voyager 2 is at some point intercepted by an alien species, figures out what a record is, puts it on and goes, hmm, this is pretty good. So what's new here? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the Golden Record is available for download now if you want to go and get your own copy, Oh, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, but there was a there's, a, there's a there's a mystery about a laugh. And this came out uh, very recently uh, with The Atlantic. Uh, and they th- there, there was an opportunity to put all these different sounds of Earth on this record. So there were ocean tides and the roaring of the wind and whale songs and elephants, elephants trumpeting and then human footsteps and human laughter. But for whatever reason, the laugh track <laughs> on the golden record didn't didn't do well because they couldn't figure out what they were supposed to do. Was should it be a, a chuckle, a snort? Should it be a snicker, a guffaw, a belly laugh? I would have gone with a guffaw. Well, yeah, but what would of an alien, what would an alien species have made of human laughter? Right. So um, I don't think they actually ever put it on because they were a little concerned about what this might, you know, would they mistake that for, for, for language or, or some sort of opportunities to communicate when actually there's, there's nothing. So selecting the right laughter for the golden record, uh, was, was very, very difficult. I've got the perfect laugh. I've got it in a folder here at Geeks and Beats headquarters called ADR, where I just add in things when they need to be added, including the laugh of one Alan J. Cross. Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, okay. So um, anyway, they're they're, <laughs> they're they're actually okay. So um, SoundCloud actually has a clip of of laughter that may in fact be there. This this clip was put up there by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. NASA can't verify the authenticity of the recording. So uh, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mystery. It's 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 there, but it only lasts a few seconds, and we're not really sure who did it or or why. So this is kind of cool. The Atlantic went through all these permutations of trying to find out exactly whose laughter this was. Oh, and we we now know whose laughter is it. It was Carl Sagan's. His own. His own. Oh, that's I mean, brilliant. He, he was the guy that was curating the record, so he just kind of slipped this in. I love it. Which is really cool. How subversive. So when um, the people from, you know, with, when Kang and Kodos actually put this record on uh, and they hear this laughter, it will be the guy that actually put the record together. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Are you a fan of Lego? Um, no. 1,969 pieces, the exact number needed to take me back to my childhood. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. The Saturn V rocket is arguably the most popular Lego set available right now, and it's a man geek's dream. It's a little challenging, rated for those aged 14 and older. It's kind of time consuming. It took almost 10 hours to build over two weekends. I may have been hung over once or twice, but it's a great way to reconnect with your inner nerd. The rocket is surprisingly true to life. There are all three rocket stages, and they fit into each other just like the real thing, and the lunar module can be hidden away inside the final stage. 1201, Roger, 1201 alarm. 1201 alarm. Same type, we're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go, same type, we're go. It's big too, it stands a meter tall, so you better have some space if you want to show it off, but it does come with little stands so it can lie horizontally. Altitude 1600. The set wasn't cheap though, 170 bucks Canadian from Lego's online store, and it was on back order for almost three weeks, even though I ordered on day one. Totally worth it for a geek project that really only requires some time and an occasional steady hand. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. For Geeks and Beats, I'm Matt Padani. Uh, over the course of the last year and a half while we've been off, I've been getting very into virtual reality. I've got one of those Oculus Rift VR headsets. Do you really? And and you're going to like this, Mr. Star Trek fan. Now, I'm a huge Star Wars guy, but you're the Star Trek guy. Star Trek Bridge Crew is now available for VR. Oh, no. You can command the Enterprise. Hey, guys. Hello, everyone. We've established she is captain. Okay, you're captain. I'll be tactical. Captain, do you want me to power to the engines? Yeah, get engines ready, please. We're going to warp to Gamma Hydra. Engage. Oh, no. Whoa. Bring us to a stop, please, Helm. In conflict, we will rescue these people. I'm doing a scan right now. Captain, Klingon ship decloaking. Red alert. 
So you put the Oculus Rift on. Yep. And you have a 360 degree view of the bridge. From the captain's position or from the navigator's position or the helm, more accurately, or engineering or security. Which bridge? Uh, one of two bridges, the original 1701 or uh, sort of a J.J. Abrams they called the Aegis. Okay. And it's got that whitish, you know, everything's glass. So it's either Kirk or Kirk Light. Right. Um, I, however, have been getting into a game called Elite Dangerous. Have you heard of this one? No. It's far more advanced. Uh, Elite Dangerous is essentially a space flight simulator slash trading simulator uh, or a combat simulator. It's, it's a sandbox game where you get X number of credits at the beginning in a simple ship and you are literally sitting in the ship. Now, as a, a child who grew up wanting to be Han Solo and the owner of the Millennium Falcon, this is amazing because unlike regular you know space ship games where you're on a 2D monitor, actually sitting in a chair. And I went out and I bought a HOTAS. Do you know what a HOTAS is? I haven't got a clue. Hands off throttle and stick. I have a joystick and a throttle in my left hand, joystick in the right, with all the necessary buttons. And in VR, when you look down at your hands, I'm actually holding the actual throttle and stick that's in the game. No! Really? Right. Frameship drive charging. So you get to be the, the, the Han Solo where you punch it, Chewie, by pushing forward on the throttle and you go into hyperspace. And you see the stars peel back like you do in the movie? Precisely. No. Four, three, two, one, engage. And then when you come out of hyperspace, whoom, there is the, the, the star that, that you've traveled to. Uh, the trading components, you know, interesting from a geek uh, economics perspective. There's buy and sell, supply and demand. You can go to different star systems, different space ports. You can load up your cargo holds on any given product, sell it at another star base, get yourself a bunch of cash. You can outfit your ship with a bunch of weaponry and go off and be a, a mercenary. Or you can do what I've been doing, which is load it up with passenger compartments and then... Uh, ship uh, criminal masterminds from point A to point B while trying to avoid the cops. Wow. And as they say, it's all in VR. So when you look around, you are in the ship. You're not, you're not on the ship. You're not watching the ship. You are in the ship. How is the latency? Zero. Absolutely zero. And that's really? What, that's what makes VR possible today compared to what it was back in the 90s when we lined up at the CNE in Toronto uh, for two and a half hours in the sun for a 10-minute tour where you stuck a helmet on. Just putting these goggles on, when you turn your head, the latency is zero, basically. It's milliseconds, such that your brain isn't thinking, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? So even though the, the, the graphics have a, what they call a screen door effect, because you've got the the LCD screen so close to your face, you literally see the spaces between the, the, the LED, the, between the dots, uh, between the pixels. You um, have this sort of feeling like you're looking at everything through a screen door. But that disappears almost immediately because as you move your head, it is there's no lag whatsoever. And the audio is also perfectly synced. And the audio is actually quite brilliant because the audio itself changes depending on what's going on at the time. You can turn it off and you can treat it like the real world of space of the year 3303. Or when you reach your destination, the music crescendos. There's a music soundtrack? 
There is a two and a half hour music soundtrack that only kicks in at certain points to help add a punch to the game. You know, so, I read, read something a little while ago that uh, some scientist was saying that the technology that's coming out now is going to propel us further ahead in the next 10 years than all the technology of the last 100. And I hear stuff like this, and I think, okay, I believe it. This, this is the Atari 2600 of my youth. Like you fast forward 30 years from now, and it's it, my daughter even said, oh yeah, it's gonna be like contact lenses you put in, uh, and you don't have these bulky headsets. Right now, the, the big limitation is that you're tethered. You've got like a 20-foot cable. Right. And, and if you turn your head too far and you walk too far in one direction, you're gonna get yanked back. Uh, but the neat thing was, was that after playing the role of Han Solo for like six months, um, suddenly, the Star Trek bridge crew game came out. And the one thing that makes it different than Elite Dangerous is it's a cooperative game. You play with three other people. No. You are either the, com the, the captain or you play one of the three other roles. And as the captain, you bark actual verbal orders to the three other guys and you can look over at them and you can see them standing right there in virtual reality um, doing what they need to do to get to the mission. The problem is, is after playing Elite Dangerous for six months, the Star Trek bridge crew was boring as hell. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it, it felt like I was flying an office building. I was issuing orders to my subordinates, and they were looking down. And and it, it all felt like I was on a track like it was a, 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 a Paramount Studios kind of thing, um, where there are four different... Uh, missions essentially. So what you what they need to do next is put some attitude in your crew, right? And, and, well, the attitude comes from actual human beings in the crew, right? Because you are playing against real people. And, and the thing is, is I, I got halfway through the tutorial and I was bored. Hmm. I wanted to go back to being Han Solo. You, however, have spent your childhood wanting to be Captain Kirk. Yes. So this may be a completely different experience for you. So you need to come over to the house, and I need to strap this onto your noggin, and you need to be Captain Kirk. Okay, that's good because I have a new vodka that I'm going to try, um, made in Alliston, Ontario. Oh, made from potatoes. What's it called? It's called Beatty's Distilleries Farm Crafted Potato Vodka. So, actually, I'm going to try some right now. Put it in the fridge. You're just going to take a shot right now. Well, while you're getting all liquored up, it's time for a Geeks and Beats update. Oh, that's good. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. No, seriously, that's good. That's Tito's good. We actually have people willing to open their wallets for the big show. Really? This is good because we do have a very large staff now, and um, we, we do have Vanessa, who is our... Executive producer. Yeah. Vanessa Azoli has been responsible for uh, essentially everything other than the actual editing of the podcast, which is my job here. Uh, so uh, over at geeksandbeats.com, we've got an entire cadre of writers updating us on some fascinating stories. Uh, in the meantime, we want to thank uh, a collection of co-producers, because remember, you've got the world's worst intern program. And what makes it the world's worst intern program is you pay us a dollar to work on the show. You don't actually lift a finger at all. You get nothing, no credit with the exception of us saying thank you on the show. But 
You can also be a show co-producer. And we want to say thank you to Chef Mike Benninger. Oh, Mike. Oh, it's good to have him back. In addition to Chef Mike Benninger, who uh, over at ChefMike.ca uh, shelled 25 bucks to co-produce the show. David McKittrick did the same. Uh, and Michael Yurkovich, who had a $25 pledge, but a $600 lifetime limit. And I can't do the mental math off the top of my head to find out if he's still technically a co-producer of the big show. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that whether you use, uh, give us a dollar an episode uh, or 25 bucks to be a co-producer in which you get the actual album art with your name on it that you can print off and hang in your mother's basement, uh, you uh, can set a lifetime limit so that we don't ding you forever. So, for example, Benninger set a $25 pledge, but a $64 lifetime limit. Uh, Yurkovich, a $600 lifetime limit. And then a collection of other fabulous uh, help outs, uh, courtesy Rob Rimmer, uh, who had a $10 a month pledge with a $62 limit. Uh, Craig Snyder, Ian Long, uh, Janos Pataki, uh, among others. We also want to say thank you very much uh, for the contributions from Microsurf, Walter McVean, Chris Potter, who updated his from $1.03 to $1.17 per show. Thank you. Every little it counts. And Grant Ridge pledged a, a dollar, as uh, did uh, a whole bunch of others. So thank you so much for helping make the show possible, because uh, we're plowing all the money back into the show. And uh, to Vanessa, who we said, we're not going to restart the, the podcast unless we actually have somebody to do the heavy lifting and we have to pay them. So, of course, the kind of cash we're raising here, basically, we said to, to Vanessa, it's going to be enough to, to take your man out for a nice dinner once a month. Yes, that's pretty much what we're operating on. Good. Well, that's very nice. Thank you, everybody. We really do appreciate the support. And it's very nice to have this kind of support after having such a long hiatus. Uh, thank you for coming back and thank you for supporting uh, whatever it is that we plan to do in the future. If you want actually something back aside from thanks on the big show, you can go to geeksandbeats.com and uh, hit the swag store and buy yourself a Geeks and Beats Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling and then hashtag us on the Twitter machine with GN, as in Norman, B, Mug Tour 2017, as Victor Biggio started off back in 2015 uh, with all, everybody all around the world showing off where their mugs have been, including Jimmy Wright, uh, who back in January before we launched the show said, screw you, Alan Cross and Hainsworth TV. I'm doing GNB Mug Tour 2017. Uh, and it looks like he's somewhere on a nice warm beach. Uh -huh. I still have my original GNB travel mug and I still use it every single morning for my coffee. And it is and remains the best travel mug ever. Seriously. It keeps hot beverages hot, cold beverages cold using the power of science. That's why we're here, to talk about science and other things. So we were thinking about doing a Facebook Live version of the show where you can actually see how the sausages are made. Yeah. Do you... Uh, I, I had an intern named Matt who was helping me out uh, with my ongoing History of New Music stuff earlier this year, and he was all over the Facebook Live thing, and he convinced me to do some uh, some stuff that way on, on, on my page. And I thought it was okay. It was a bit weird knowing that I was having somebody kind of look over my shoulder as I was making the sausages, but yeah. he insists, like the millennials, the snowflakes say that this is a big deal and that maybe we should get into it. <laughs> the snowflakes. So here, uh, let us know what you think. Would you watch it? Maybe we do it once a month. Uh, so go to geeksandbeats.com. Uh, uh, tell us what you think via the contact page or just fire us off a tweet. Um, we're, we'll, we'll put up a, a, a poll to find out whether or not it's the kind of thing that you'd actually uh, like to watch. Yeah. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to the big show next week because now we're, uh, we're making a few changes here, going a little more thematic. Next week, it's going to be horror movie music. Mm -hmm. 
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.